0: All right and uh and it's half time so we'll uh we won't we won't miss too much uh, we can give thanks for DVRs All right the um yeah this is um uh the first question is a is a question we can uh we can answer from uh the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the, uh, the question is, uh, how perfect must my theology be to be saved? Sometimes at conferences, I feel uh, not the crushing weight of sin, but the crushing weight of having the right theology. Is uh, having incorrect theology a sin? Uh, can the blood of Christ uh, overcome even that? All right. So there's several questions in there, uh, good questions, and I, I get these a lot, um, and, uh, and 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 I, I appreciate the the pastoral problem. Um, so the this is not a new question, and and the Reformed churches uh, address this in Heidelberg twenty two what is necessary then for a Christian to believe? And we say, all that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic, meaning universal, ecumenical, not meaning Roman, undoubted Christian faith, teach us in summary. So everything that we need to believe uh, for salvation uh, is summarized in the Apostles' Creed. But not just, obviously, the the bare Apostles' Creed, uh, because... uh, we explain the creed in the catechism, and we, and in effect, in the confession and in the canons. Um, so, and, and also, we could look at the, um, uh, at the Athanasian Creed, one of the early ecumenical creeds, probably from the fifth century, which says, um, uh, uh, whosoever will be saved has to believe certain things. And it goes on to summarize the doctrine of the Trinity in very precise terms and the doctrine of the two natures of Christ. So I, I get the force of the criticism or the implied criticism, the question that you know, uh, it's one thing to be crushed by the, the law relative to our, to our sin. It's another thing to be crushed by what sometimes seems like a lot of doctrine. Um, I, I would push back by saying you know, we live in a, in a demanding world. Uh, we use computers. We drive increasingly complicated cars. Uh, I'm in a rental right now trying to figure out what, what, all, what it, what, what it does. I don't need to do everything, but I do need to have some idea what it's doing. And, uh, and We manage, right? We learn what we have to learn in order to, to get to grips with that. Um, when we go to the doctor and, and, and he uh, or she gives us a diagnosis, we go to the Internet. And we start looking stuff up. And we research stuff. And we learn stuff that's important to us. Well, if we can do that with medicine, or with our cars, our computers, and everything else in our lives, then I think we can also do it with our faith. And uh, I mean, sure, uh, can, can you get into sort of endless uh, details? And and uh, can it be a little overwhelming? Sure. But uh, uh, it, I think it, you know. I. I guess I'm a little biased. I do this for a living, and I think it's important. If I didn't think it was important, I wouldn't do it. I'd do something else. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, I, I think we... Well, certainly we need to know the basics of the Christian faith, as summarized by the by the creed. And and I think fairly, we can say, as explained in the Catechism. right? We don't understand the creed, for example, the way Rome understands the creed. And, and in some ways, we don't understand the creed the way our Lutheran brothers and sisters understand it, or, or, or other traditions. Um, so, um, so, is having a bad theology or incorrect theology sin? Well, it can be. If, if your incorrect theology says that you're justified because you're sanctified, uh, the Apostle Paul calls that another gospel in Galatians 2. right? So, that's not Clark. That's not even the Reformed churches. That's the Apostle Paul saying that's, that's another gospel. And when he says another gospel, basically we really should put that word gospel in quotation marks to indicate that he's being ironic. It's not a, it's not a gospel at all to say that you're justified because you're sanctified or justified by or through uh, circumcision or through baptism, right? Um, if you say, for example, that Jesus wasn't re- truly human, or isn't true a true a man and true God, that he only appeared to be a man, as people were doing uh, in, the early, uh, in, the, in the late 1st century and in the 2nd century, the Apostle John says that you're an antichrist. So it's necessary to believe in the true humanity of Jesus. If anyone who says that Jesus is not God the Son in the flesh Right? That person is condemned in Scripture. So there are basic things that, that have to be affirmed, and that's why we summarize those. That's why the early church talked about the, the rule of faith. The regular Fidei is the rule of faith, and in the regular Fidei, uh, for example, Irenaeus, in about 170 A.D., gave us effectively what would become the Apostles' Creed. So very early on, we were saying these things. So... Um, yeah, there are there are uh, differences. There are things on which we can disagree and and still be Christians, but there are things that are really essential to the Christian faith. And and uh, probably as Reformed people, we would have a longer list than other folks. But I think we can defend that list. Um, uh, so uh, minimalism is always a temptation. Uh, so the blood of of Christ can cer- certainly. We all have false, incorrect ideas. But there are. Certain things that are absolutely required that are essential and uh, and, and those would be the things that we uh, we confess and that we want to hold to um, without apology so I, I I hope that gets at the question uh, how is the reformed? how does the reformed idea of worship uh, differ from broader the, the ideas of broader evangelicalism well um, that's, a, that's a, a great question, and, and one on which we could hold an entire conference. Um, but we can sum, the answer is, um, is right here in Heidelberg 96. Um, what does God require in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God. So that's the specific issue that they were facing. But here comes the general principle nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded us in his word." Uh, so that, that last clause, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded us in his word, that is the universal reformed principle of worship. Uh, in the 16th century, it was called, Calvin called it the rule of worship, which he actually connected with the rule of faith that I just mentioned, the regula fidei, the uh, uh, rule of faith. This is the regula culti, he called it the rule of worship. So, th- uh, this was Calvin's principle. This is uh, the Heidelberg principle. It's the principle that we see in Belgic Article 7 uh, uh, and elsewhere in the Belgic Confession. Bob? Doesn't that also include examples? Since the apostles worshipped on the Lord's Day, it was not a command as the end do this. Well, yeah. Uh, so, the question is. Um, what do we do, if I reframe, reframe the question, what do we do with the example of the apostles? Um, the, I think we wanna, I want to stay with what I said about the principle. Um, and I think we can defend gathering on the Sabbath, the Christian Lord's Day, from the Hebrew scriptures in which we were commanded to gather on the, on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath principle doesn't go away. The day changes. Right? But, the, but the Sabbath principle doesn't change. And the Sabbath principle is that we rest, worship, and love our neighbors, uh, basically works of mercy and works of necessity, uh, uh, and otherwise abstain from what we used to call servile labor. In other words, uh, if you work at Macy's, which is fine, you've got six days to work at Macy's, but it's not a work of necessity. If you're a physician, a nurse, a police officer, a fireman or something, that's a work of necessity. That has to be done. You, you can't not have that. Not like the police could just stop working on the, on the Christian Sabbath because it's a Sabbath. So, um, so our, our, our principle distinguishes us from uh, uh, the Anglicans uh, who confess in the Anglican articles that, in effect, we're free to do and worship whatever is not forbidden. And also from uh, the Romanists, obviously, who believe not only we're free to do what is not forbidden, but, but we, we may do what the church uh, decrees to be done. Right? They, they have a parallel authority to scripture, which is really functionally above scripture. And the, the evangelicals, broader evangelicalism, has historically, since um, certainly the early 19th century in, in North America, followed the, the Lutheran principle that we may do, and the Anglican principle, we may do whatever is not forbidden. And so that's why they have images. They don't think that images are forbidden uh, by Scripture. Uh, They think Jesus became incarnate in order order that we can make pictures of him. Um, And and I respond, with the entire ancient church for the first six centuries, you might not know this, the entire ancient church for the first six centuries, absolutely, unequivocally condemned images of Christ. Uh, There were no images. By the way, There were also, and here I go from preaching to meddling, um, there were no musical instruments in Christian worship until 750s. There was one organ that was permitted by the papacy in Spain, um, but it was still relatively unusual. In the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas said, we don't use musical instruments. Um, That would be Judaizing, is what he said. And that's why none of the Reformed churches in the 16th century used instruments either. and That was their principle. They said the instruments belong to types and shadows. Um, now, our churches mainly have come to disagree with that. Um, I, and I, one of my jobs is to provoke everyone to keep thinking about whether, whether we did the right thing by disagreeing with it. But that conclusion, but that was the original conclusion was um, that because they're not commanded and because they're parts of, part of the types and shadows. So that's why our worship differs from the evangelicals. The principle of the evangelical worship service is uh, is uh, formulated was formulated by Charles Finney in the 19th century. Charles Finney was a revivalist who set up a system of uh, revival whereby he figured out what to do, what to say, how to how to arrange things to get people to come forward to the anxious bench. They set a, they set up a bench. And he would preach, and they would sing, and everything was organized so that he could get you. He could manipulate you emotionally to, to come forward, and, uh, and then pray at the anxious bench, and, and basically sign the card, and quote unquote, become a Christian. So that's the altar call. Uh, and the, that's the, the evangelical service is in two parts. Um, not when I say evangelical, I'm speaking in historical terms, not in theological terms. Um, the first part of the service is that you sing. Typically, sing for 30 minutes, get people wound up. Um, There are meetings on Wednesdays where they pick out the chord progressions to get uh, people emotionally to trigger them emotionally to move them from point A to point B to create uh, a certain response in them. I know this. I've, I've studied it. I've read it. I've talked to people who've done it. Yes, I've been in those. I've talked to people who've said yes. I was in those meetings. We know exactly what chord progressions to choose to provoke certain responses in people. And and we'll get them to react the way we want them to react. And then the second half of the service is, is the preaching. So it's a bipartite service. Our services, because of our understanding of this principle of worship, are a call and response. The word speaks, the people respond. The word speaks, the people respond. It's the dialogical principle. And that's why our services are so radically different. I just wrote an article about this, basically saying to people, listen, when you come into a Reformed church, and you come out of an evangelical service, this sort of Phineite service where you sing for 30 minutes and you have this sort of experience, what's actually happening in your brain is that dopamine and norepinephrine is being stimulated. And you get, you get a, a a chemical high in the brain. And this is what people mean when they say, we really worship. What they mean is they got that dopamine shot. Uh, and I this I first really saw this about, 10 years ago, one of my students said to me, "You know, he knew what was right. And he said, I really should go over there to worship. But I keep going over here because I'm hooked. And when he said, hooked, I thought, you know what? I bet that's literally true. And I started looking into it. And I found out it really is true. It takes a while. And I don't know how long, but I've asked people. and And the anecdotal evidence I have is it takes several weeks, maybe months, to actually uh, detox, if you will, from the dopamine high so that when you come into church, you're not expecting to get that shot of dopamine. And so people come in, and the first two or three weeks, they don't get the dopamine shot, and they, uh, they go through withdrawal. It's, and it's actually, if it's not physically painful, it's emotionally painful. So it's a big shock, actually, coming into our churches. And we probably should account for that and help people I don't know what the theological equivalent of methadone is. but I'm not even sure if methadone works, but we, we might need some kind of theological methadone. Well, yes. But I mean, stuff takes time, and methadone helps you get off of heroin, so or at least theoretically. Um, all right. Uh, is federal vision a heresy? Yes. Uh, what's the difference between a heretic and a confused Christian? Ooh, good question. I mean, sure. Sorry? Yeah, the um, a heretic. I guess we could say is some, well. First of all, we, we have to define what we mean by heresy, and we can use it in the broad sense and in the narrow sense. In the broad sense, uh, a heresy. The, the word "hairesis" in Greek just originally meant a sect, uh, a group, a faction, right? And then it got then it comes to be used also in the New Testament to refer to an an errant doctrine, a seriously uh, erring doctrine. So, um, and you in the early church, you could have a moral heresy or a doctrinal heresy. Typically, today, we, we talk about heresy in terms of doctrine. In the broad sense, it's a seriously erring doctrine. So, in the narrow sense, it's something that, that contradicts the ecumenical creeds the Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed, Athanasian Creed, and the, and the definition of Chalcedon. Um, in, and I think, arguably, the federal vision is a heresy. Now, that's my personal opinion. I don't know that any ecclesiastical body has actually used the H-word, sort of dropped an H-bomb on the federal vision. They've certainly rejected it categorically. The NAPARC churches, North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council churches, the PCA, the OPC, the RCUS, the URC, the main main bodies, and then some of the others have rejected it. The Canadian Reformed, for example, have not. They have publicly said that they have three churches at least, three congregations that affirm the federal vision, according to one report on the floor of Synod in, I think, 2013. One of their ministers said this, that they couldn't. Then that's probably what's going to prevent the merger between the CANRC and the URC, is that we, we won't merge, I hope, with a denomination that has federal visionists in their midst. Um, um, so I don't know that anybody's used the H word, but insofar as Synod, the Synod of Dort called Arminianism a heresy. And insofar as the federal vision is essentially a version of Arminianism, we, I think we might be justified. Now, that's my personal opinion. That's the case I'm arguing. But I, I want to be clear that no, far, as far as I know, no ecclesiastical body has made that pronouncement. So we want to be careful. I, I always urge my students to be careful about dropping the H bomb and you, you know, use that advisedly. So. Um, but yeah, Christians are often struggle with doctrine. I mean, my mind has changed. In the you know, I came to faith around 76, 77. In that period, began to come to faith. I mean, and and started attending St. John's in what 1980 or so. And I remember very well being in the basement of the that old Lutheran Latvian church on Charl is it 14th in Charleston, and and asking Warren Embry, I said, what about uh, you know, what about Israel? And, his, I, I, and I repeat this to my students. Uh, he said the, the dividing wall has been broken down. I said, "What about Israel? What about, what about the future of Israel? The temple and all of that?" He said, "The dividing wall has been broken down." I said, "Yeah, fine. What about Israel?" He said, "The dividing wall has been broken down," and he wouldn't talk to me about any of that stuff until I reckoned with Ephesians 2. He made me go back to Ephesians 2 and account for that until he was. So, anyways, I, that was one of my very earliest encounters with Warren, and it had a huge. Obviously, I remember it like it was yesterday. So, um, I was confused, and and Warren and, and Vern and, and you guys all helped me come to a clearer understanding of these things. Was I, I believe I was a Christian, but I was, uh, but I was confused. So, I mean, that's just my own personal story. But I think we could replicate that. So, I think there's some difference. Um, did I hold some heretical ideas? Probably. Was I articulating them? I don't know. I hope not. I know as an early, as a young Christian, I said a lot of very stupid things for which I'm sorry, but, um, but I think there's a difference. <clears throat> Paul says, uh, uh, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, and though uh, I am free, I become a slave to all that I might uh, win the more. And... Um, How I ought ought to speak? Is that what that says? And then, how important is the question is, how important is our work in evangelism to cause people to believe? Um, That's a great question. Uh, It it is the case that God uses means. And so uh, we have to say that God has decreed the ends and also the means, He's ordained the means. And so we like to talk about the, the due use of the ordinary means of grace. And the ordinary means of grace are the preaching of the holy gospel and the administration of the sacraments, and then uh, the use of discipline. Those are the three marks, according to Belgic 29, of the of the true church. So, as I was saying earlier in the in one of the sessions, Heidelberg 65 says, you know, since we're justified by, you know, true faith, by faith alone. for where does this true faith come? And the holy we answer the Holy Spirit creates true faith or works true faith in our hearts through the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it through the use of the Holy Sacrament. So um, God uses these ordained means to accomplish His purpose. So that's essential. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the method God has set up. But there's a difference between announcing the law and announcing the Gospel and praying and, and trusting and explaining and, and, and relying on the Spirit to do His work and doing as I have seen people done, as I have done myself many, many years ago, try to manipulate people into becoming Christians, right? Ask them you know, manipulative or dishonest, misleading questions, like, you know, are you, uh, do you know the way? I know there was a fellow who used to say, do you know the way to worlds of fun? And then somebody would explain, well, you go down here to Antioch and turn left and you know, take uh, you know, the, the freeway. And then he'd say, well, that's great, but do you know the way to heaven? Right? That kind of thing. Um, I'm no fan of that kind of stuff at all. I I, uh, spent a week down in Dell City, Oklahoma, back in the late 80s, studying evangelism explosion. And uh, so so, so that I could teach evangelism explosion. Uh, uh, I think Alan Mallory was with me, memory serves. Anyway. and I did it. I went out, knocked on doors, handed out flyers, and asked the diagnostic questions, and did all those things that evangelism explosion teaches you to do. You know, and, and some of it is, frankly, a little manipulative. And you have to have a story, kind of a, an exciting conversion story to tell, and and it's it's kind of a sales pitch, a modified sales pitch, which worked great in the South, uh, where. Uh, where Kennedy set this up and and used it. And it's been used lots of other places. And it's not altogether bad. The diagnostic question is a good question. If you were to die tonight, find yourself standing before, uh, face to face with God, and he said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? That's a great question. But the rest of it, I think, is subject to some pretty serious criticisms. And I've I've come to reject a a fair bit of what they they encourage. Uh, So. So God uses means, and I, I teach seminars on, on try encouraging God's people to give witness to their faith. But it's not our business to do the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the, I always tell my students one of the first big breakthroughs I had in pastoral ministry was getting off uh, I-35 on an on-ramp, and, it, and I was thinking about ministry and what was going on, and it occurred to me, you're not the Holy Spirit, idiot which you'd think is sort of obvious. <laughs> uh, it was one of those days, I think, where I had driven you know, 80 or 90 miles. I had people north of Smithville, and people down in the far southeast corner, and down to see Richard Barr, and the Fishers, and somebody over in Kansas, and changed clothes three times. And I think that was probably the context in <laughs> which I was trying to be everywhere, and, and it I, dawned on me. Um, you're not the Holy Spirit. You can't do the work of the Holy Spirit. You shouldn't try. It's not my job to close the deal. My job is simply to give witness. And when somebody asks to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he was crucified. He obeyed for me. He was crucified for me. He was raised for me. He's ascended, and he's coming back. You know, would you like to believe in him? That's, that is as complicated as evangelism ever has to get. right? Um, so... Uh, I think God certainly uses that, but but what He uses what he 's promised to use officially, is what takes place there that 's huge that 's the actual that 's evangelism right there, so I like to distinguish between evangelism, the public official proclamation of the gospel done by a minister and and witness right giving witness to the faith like the man born blind he wasn 't ordained, but he gave witness to his faith and a little bit to the faith anyway well there 's a, a Short answer, I I hope that helps a little bit. Compare and contrast the Baptistic, revivalistic teaching of once saved, always saved, and the perseverance of the saints. Uh, Yeah, there's some overlap, uh, but when uh, our evangelical brothers and sisters talk about uh, once saved, always saved, what they mean typically, I'm, I'm not, to be honest, entirely certain I understand what they mean by this, but most of the time they, they tend to mean now that you've walked the aisle and prayed the prayer, signed the card, closed the deal, you're in, and nothing can change that. right? And so this, it was in that context that the lordship debate happened in the 70s and, and 80s, uh, most famously represented by uh, Zane Hodges and his followers uh, from Dallas Seminary. On the one hand, uh, the quote, the so called free grace people, who are essentially antinomians who denied the abiding validity of the Ten Commandments and uh, and then the lordship people, the people represented by John MacArthur in his book uh, the Gospel according to jesus and and I think as reformed people, we want to say a pox on both their houses. Uh, they were all wrong uh, because the whole business of 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 saying that, that I was saved when I came forward, is a complete misunderstanding of salvation. You weren't saved when you came forward. I know what people mean when they say that, but it's simply not true. You were sa- if you are saved, you were saved when Jesus said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit. That's when you were saved. That's when salvation was accomplished. What we're really talking about is, when did the Holy Spirit apply salvation to you? Well, the truth is, you don't really know that. And the, and the premise of the whole debate is I can know when that happened, right? I think I remember coming to, beginning to come to faith. I can't tell you exactly when the Holy Spirit made me a new person. I don't know because Jesus says in John 3, you don't know where the Spirit comes from. You don't know where he's going. The point is you don't know and people think, oh, I do know. No, actually, if you pay attention to Jesus, you don't know. What you know is that you believe now. What you know is that your profession of faith has been accepted by the consistory as a credible profession of faith, and you're admitted to the table. You're admitted to Holy Communion. That's what you know. People say, "You know, um, are you a believer?" And sometimes, if I depending on why I think they're asking the question, I'll say, "Well, my consistory still admits me to Holy Communion. I'm not under discipline which is not exactly what they want to hear, but it's a better answer than what they want me to say. What they want me to say is, well, I know I'm saved because I had X and Y experience in 1977, which has almost nothing to do with scripture. So that's, that's the context of the once saved, always saved. And then so people say, well, I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. It's just about like the Roman view, right? The, I, I went to the priest, he pronounced Absolution. He gave me penances, you know, or I was baptized, you know, and then I died. If if you could have that conversation, some kind of a magical view. I walk the aisle and ex opera operato by the working it has worked. Bada bim, bada boom, I'm in, and nothing I can do can change that. That's what they. That's what sometimes is meant by once saved, always saved. And we want to say "Ah, that has nothing to do with Christianity. That's a magical view. Um, uh, And the, the perseverance of the saints simply says. That true believers will persevere and they will be preserved by the grace of God, and, and no one can snatch you out of the hand of, of Christ. And uh, we're, so we're talking about true faith, right? So that's Heidelberg 21. When the people who talk about once saved, always saved, uh, when, when they say once saved, always saved, they're not talking about what is true faith. True faith is not only a certain knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a, a hearty trust, right? Which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel, that not only to others, but to me also. Forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. That's, that's what we're talking about when we talk about perseverance. That When you're resting in Christ and what he did. Not your coming forward, your signing a card, or any of that. So... I hope that helps. Um, I mean, I, and I'm not saying the people who've come forward, signed a card, prayed a prayer, come to faith at a Billy Graham rally, or come to faith watching a TV preacher. I'm not saying those people aren't believers. God uses that. My friend Carl Truman came to faith at a Billy Graham rally. So, absolutely, God's free to do whatever he wants. I'm just saying, I, but we don't have any promises attached to a Billy Graham rally, right? Where, for year, years and years, they primed the pump they had staff members pre-planned to come out of the stands, you know. So when when Reverend Graham would give the invitation, all these people would come streaming out. Those were those were workers. They were catchers, right? They come down to the bottom of the down, to, you know, down to the bottom of the stadium, and then they were supposed to catch all these people who were they weren't responding to the message. Now people did respond to the message, but there was also manipulation. But still, God used that. God's free to use that. It's just that we don't have any promises for that. The question is, did the Remonstrants try to make any points from Acts 2.38? And what is your comment on this? I don't know, and so I can't comment. That's an easy one. Uh, In your study of the Synod of Dor, what did you find was the most surprising and the most helpful? Um, Oh, that's a good question. Most surprising, because I've been learning so much. Uh, One surprising thing that I have learned uh re- very recently there are a lot of things but one thing i've learned most recently is in uh head of in the head of doctrine uh first head of doctrine article twelve uh i just saw this really in the last week or two uh, let's see i getting that right now where was it the question is uh two of them what uh in your study of the Senate of Dor what have you what did you find was the a or one the most surprising and b most helpful and um, uh oh here we article 10 that's why i'm struggling here i i'm not sure which uh, head uh, of doctrine uh first head of doctrine article 10 page 81 uh, if you look, if you look at the first sentence, right? This is about uh, remember, ultip unconditional election. This is the U in ultip. Uh, the good pleasure of God is the sole cause of this gracious election, which does not consist herein that out of all possible qualities and actions of men, God has chosen some as a condition of salvation. That language. That's a refutation of middle knowledge. I knew that Arminius and the Arminians believed in middle knowledge. Remember, there's natural knowledge, what God, what God knows about himself, which is everything, and free knowledge, what God knows about us, right, our choices. And then the Remonstrants and, uh, and others, uh, Louis Molina, said there's middle knowledge. God knows what you might do. He doesn't know what you will do. This is a response to middle knowledge. So that that, uh, is sort of delightful and surprising. Um, I don't know if it's the most, but it is certainly delightful and surprising. I'd say most helpful, um, when I first reread the canons a long time ago, I was doing my doctoral work, and I'd been reading a lot about Reformed theology, and people were talking about the canons as if they were some dry, turgid, academic document. And I sat down and I read the canons, and I found them to be exactly the opposite. Um, I understood as I read them, these are pastors writing about these things in, in order to help God's people. So I'm very passionate about the pastoral quality of the Canons of Dort. Uh, these, these are very much like, in that way, like the Heidelberg. A little more difficult than the Heidelberg, but, but only because the challenges they were facing were really sophisticated challenges. And I tried to sketch that for you. How the Armenians used our language, and then would change it in various ways, and so we really had to be very precise to respond uh, to these things. Um, if you, uh, if you, if the doctor says, you know, I'm sorry to tell you, you have a certain form of cancer, right? Uh, you want the doctor to go in, and to treat that cancer very specifically. And now we have these wonderful high-tech treatments for cancer. You know, you wanted to put. The medicine right in this spot and nowhere else, and you want the surgery to be right in this spot and nowhere else you don 't want it to be like it was you know fifty or hundred years ago. Uh, he tells you you have cancer, then he comes back in with a with a bone saw right uh, well the the canons are that way they 're very precise, very careful, responding to very uh, pr- sort of difficult challenges, but also I think very pastoral and uh, i I find it very helpful and it, they've been very helpful, as I say, dealing with the federal vision controversy. I mean, who would have thought that the canons would have given us ways to understand and think about the, the uh, federal vision? So um, I suppose some people know now. I, I'm sure people know by now. Uh, I drafted the nine points against the federal vision that the URC has adopted I- I- at Synod. Um, somebody contacted me and said, "We need a, we need some something to respond to this." and so I took the PCA points, I used them as a template, but we were facing somewhat different issues. So I, I rewrote them and wrote them specifically to address the things that we were uh, facing. And I used the, the the canons really helped me, and especially the language of the rejection of errors. We reject the errors of those who teach, and then you begin listing the errors so that people can know what not, what to look out for. Was Arminius elect? I have no idea. It's not my business. Uh, but that is a great opportunity to remind us that the the first head of doctrine tells us we never, ever ask the question, am I elect? That's a terrible question. We can't know, shouldn't ask. Uh, the question you ask is, uh, do I believe? And so was Arminius a believer is a better question. And and I, I, I don't know. It's not my business to judge. Uh, Synod spoke very sharply about Arminius and very... Uh, deliberate terms. I would not want to be the recipient of the language that Synod used. Right? Um, so I am not going to speculate about his eternal state. That's none of my business. I'm going to leave him to the care of God. I hope that in his last hours, as he was dying of tuberculosis in 1609, that he was whatever he said, that he was trusting in his heart in the finished work of Christ and not in anything that he had done or contributed to, sal- to salvation. So I, that's my hope. I hope that for everyone, right? But I'm not going to speculate about him. Was he or was he manufacturing by his own choice, right? His own salvation. Well, certainly his doctrine leads to that. But I I hope that in his heart, B.B. Uh, Warfield used to say that on on their knees, uh, all Christians are Calvinists, and I think that's true. I, I have n- I have never heard a an Arminian pray to say, Oh Lord, I know that. You can't actually effect this, that, so, that this person themselves has to effect salvation. Uh, but I really wish that this would... Right? I've never heard an Arminian pray. When, Arminian, when I've heard Arminians pray, they pray like I do. Oh, sovereign God, do this, do that, do the other. Right? So I take comfort in that, uh, that, that most people, I, I trust, are, are with us, and not just Calvinists, uh, Augustinians. This, really, this is really about whether Augustine was right, and we could even say whether Paul was right. Uh, so, uh, If Arminius was a Pelagian and a heretic, and if most modern evangelical churches follow Arminianism, like the Methodist Church, should we call them heretics? Um, well, we, uh, that would be an inference, uh, but I, I do think we have to g- grapple with what Synod said. Uh, it's complicated since Arminius, right, because we're talking about a, a sort of a de- derivation, a subset of Arminianism, evangelical Arminianism. I will say that one of the scariest things I ever did was to read John Wesley. It scared me to death. Uh, there's not a sh- I couldn't find a shred of gospel in Wesley. It's a true story. I, I was teaching at Wheaton. And I thought, you know, I met Wheaton. It's a historically, basically, Wesleyan school. I, I better get to know Wesley. And I'd been... Spending, to that time, to that point, I'd been spending all my time translating Olivianus, uh, De Substantia, and other things, Commentary in Romans and whatnot. And so I, I just hadn't been reading this 18th century stuff. So I started reading Wesley, and it, honestly, after a while, I just had to put it down. It, was, uh, it left me despairing and hopeless. Um, so I would not want to be a Wesleyan. I asked my friend, uh, my acquaintance friend, Tom Odin, who was a Wesleyan-Arminian, uh, and a lovely guy, and a really good gospel guy. He you listen to Tom Oden articulate the gospel, you'd think he was one of us, right? Uh, but he loved Wesley. And I asked him, I don't know how do you reconcile these two things. And he said, well, if you really want to see Wesley on the gospel, you have to read his correspondence. And, and my response has always been, uh, you know, and I tell the students, you better not confine the gospel to your private correspondence, right? You get paid to preach the gospel in public from that bad boy, right? You know, if it's confined to your correspondence, that's a terrible commendation uh, of a man's ministry. So, uh, I'm, and needless to say, I'm not a huge fan uh, of Wesley. And, and frankly, the state of the United Methodist churches, I think, or church, we could say, is, doesn't appear to me to be very, very healthy. Um, all right, um, yeah, that's it. I got them all. Uh, last uh, will uh, anything come up since since we started? Yes, dear. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the question is do we do we run the danger when we talk about uh, Arminius, the remonstrants and others uh, uh the way that that, that the Synod, of Dore did, and and, um, and uh, you know, do we run the danger of becoming self-righteous? Absolutely, but if we become self-righteous when we talk about these things, it's only because we're not paying attention to what what we say, right? Um, so uh, in in the altip, right, uh, the T in altip is is told depravity. So our, uh, God didn't save us because we're smart. We didn't figure these things out because we're clever. Uh, God, we confess and we say in the beginning of the Synod of in the preface, that God preserved the church. God preserved the gospel. And, and we recognize that he used these men to do this. Um, so, yeah, it, when we think about these things, these should not be occasions for pride. These should be occasions for humility. Um, and in some ways, a sober reassessment. Um, for example, um, you know, uh, you know, your dad would cast the deciding vote. He said at, against Professor Shepard in 1981 in Philadelphia. I mean, the majority of the faculty supported, uh, up to that point, Norm, Norm's right to teach justification through faith and works, which is astounding at a place like at a place like Westminster. How can that possibly be? So if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. Um, and, and so, yeah, this is not an opportunity for pride. And so I, I appreciate that, that implied exhortation that um, we can't be walking around patting ourselves on, our, on the back as to how clever we are, how enlightened we are, how superior we are, because um, that's, yeah, that's not the point. I mean, uh, the point is that Arminius arose within the Reformed Church, and lots of people supported him and defended him. And in fact, it wasn't long after uh, the Arminians were um, rejected at Dort, it was only a few years later that they were allowed to re-enter the ministry of the Reformed churches in the Netherlands, and it was only uh, very shortly thereafter that the churches uh, actually became quite corrupt. So the 17th century in the Netherlands, uh, uh, there's a lot of great Reformed theologians, but the Remonstrance actually grew, and uh, and by the time you get to the early 19th century, the state of the Reformed Churches was very bad, so bad that there had to be a separation in 1834. Um, so that um, uh, we, we did not cover ourselves in glory. And When we first started raising the, I, I, you know, I identify obviously with Petrus Plancius because he, he spoke up about Arminius and took a lot of flack for it. Um, but uh, when some of us started speaking up about the Federal Vision there was a lot. A lot of folks said, "Oh, this is no big deal," and um, so we have not always covered ourselves in glory in these things. So that, that's a fair. That's a fair point, um, right? The, the five points are about grace, not about our our cleverness, our ingenuity. The canons had five really about easy believism. Yeah. Yeah. It's all by grace. The whole thing. And even even hanging on to these truths is by grace. So, Alright. Anything else, Pastor? We? Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you for having me. Can, can, can I pray? Yeah. Can we pray just briefly? Father, we're grateful for time to be together and to think about these things and to be edified and and to encourage one another in the truth, uh, we're grateful for the canons, for the synod, um, and that we still have these things, and, um, and that we can continue to be edified. We we do pray, O oh Lord, um, for the spread of the gospel. We pray for our brothers and sisters across the globe uh, who aren't aren't able to gather in, in safety and in freedom to to think about these things. Um, we pray for our friends, and relatives, um, co-workers, neighbors who do not know you in a saving way. And we, we pray that you'll uh, soften their uh, eyes, open their ears, and uh, we pray for our ministers as they preach the gospel that you'll use that proclamation to accomplish your glorious purposes. Um, call all of your elect to new life and true faith and, and to edify the church. Hear our prayer, always forgive our sins, renew us in every way. And bless us as we gather on the Lord's Day tomorrow. For Jesus' sake.